AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So, John, we've long talked about the fact that attribution is super hard when it comes to APT groups or attackers of any kind. And it sounds like we've got a story here that kind of shows exactly why it can be so hard. Right. Yeah, actually, it's an interesting um, um, article, I guess. The NCSC, which is Natural Cybersecurity Center, which is part of GCHQ, that's the UK's kind of version of the NSA, I guess. Um, and the NSA, uh, the United States um, organizations, they kind of jointly released a report about the Turla Group. And the Turla Group has been attributed to some Russian nation-state actors. And the interesting thing is, and we've talked about this before, it's, it's really easy, in my opinion, for any nation-state actor to kind of pretend to be another nation-state actor, as long as they really know pretty well the tool sets they use and their techniques. Um, especially if you've been in incident response, you can really kind of, you know, we've seen this, where you can kind of get a really quick assessment of, well, this looks like it's Chinese, or this looks like it's uh, Iranian, mm -hmm. or it looks like Russian based on the tool sets being used. Yep. Um, so the interesting thing about this is that apparently the Turla group, they were targeting some Middle East uh, targets, uh, which also the Iranians uh, target Middle East targets. And there was some um, use of the, by the Turla group of reusing infrastructure and uh, tool sets that the Iranian groups use. Um, also, they did a lot of interesting things uh, along the way. So they had scripts running that would look for the back doors that the Iranians had already implanted on assets and then try to reuse those backdoor web shells that the Iranians used. Um, and then also um, target the same victims. So there's a lot of victim overlap as well hmm. uh, from what they reported. Uh, they were using the, um, this active server uh, pages uh, web shell. So we've talked about web shells before. Mm -hmm. uh, web shell is basically a script that you can deploy uh, on a web server and it kind of gives you somewhat of a command line file manager-esque like um, backdoor into those servers. Mm -hmm. So they use that, um, which are typically um, uh, the neuron and Nautilus implants are very Turla-esque. They're ones that they use a lot, uh, but some of the other things are not that they use. Um, they also use the Iranian C2 infrastructure, which I thought was interesting. So the Iranian nation state actors, they use a control panel called Poison Frog and the um, Turla actors, Russian, use the Poison Frog control panels um, to distribute their payloads to victims that were already in those panels, hmm. um, you know, already compromised by those things. Um, so it's an interesting kind of overlap and it makes the waters really muddied in terms of being able to tell mm -hmm. who's who, especially when both nations are targeting very similar victim sets, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's wild. I mean, the, the, the part that makes it even more wild for me is that <laughs> Turla, is up in you know Iranians' business, and we've got a report about it from GCHQ and the NSA. So they're probably up in both of their business. Right. They're all got they've all got you know views into each other's infrastructure and what's going on. Right. Which is which is a little bit nuts, um, but it is also interesting because you know typically when we talk about the attribution problem, we're saying someone could easily pretend to be another actor. Here they're actually using the other person's infrastructure and tooling, like 
in deployment. It's not like they get made a copy of it and they put it on a separate server right. and they're pretending to be they're Iran. Using the exact same infrastructure, yeah. same machines that are already being used by the Iranians for their, you know, objectives, mm. and they piggybacked on them to do the same. Type That's of stuff. wild. Yeah. yeah. I guess it also lets you know that Iran the Iranian um, nation state actors aren't doing a lot of good opsec in terms of protecting their infrastructure. Yeah, or monitoring, apparently. Right. Because if, if somebody else is in your own system, you know, using your infrastructure for attacks, and you haven't noticed it, you know, if you are an offensive hacking group for a government, you're doing legitimate work like this, like you've got something to do, um, you need to keep an eye on your own infrastructure. It's not just a matter of offensive attacks against somebody else. It's a matter of defending what you've got, because you've got hacker tools sitting on a server somewhere. Right. Uh, and if anything happens that you know, could be attributed back to what you're doing, you know, you, it's going to be very hard to convince somebody else that, oh, no, it wasn't us hacking them this time with our tools and our IP address and all this other stuff that ties back to us. Right. Know? Right. It, it falls down to a, a political blame game that somebody could, you know, pivot on a different, you know, government's um, infrastructure, do a bunch of nasty stuff and be like, it, it wasn't us, it was them. And that's really hard to prove, especially when it's like, you know, doing some nefarious behavior and then all of a sudden they're pointing to somebody else. It's just, it's, it could just be a nightmare for those particular uh, countries that are using that infrastructure. It does make you as, it, let's say you were a victim um, of this, you know, kind of come into question of, well, who was it that was here? Because by my incident response, um, you know, investigation, it looked like I ran, mm -hmm. um, but now it could have been Russia and maybe they're after different types of information along the way. So you might have to reassess um, what the objectives might have been in terms of penetrating whatever that target was, whoever you, you know, whoever yeah. the victims were. You kind so, of ask, what do you actually really know anymore? <laughs> right, right. It's very hard to do uh, good attribution or, you know, foolproof attribution of who actually just attacked you. So don't always jump to conclusions about who is targeting you. The takeaway here is that attribution is a much harder game as a result of this. I mean, it may be very infrequent to see a group co-opt somebody else's resources like this for an attack, uh, but the possibility will always be there in the back of our minds now. Uh, it happened once, it could be happening again, and so you're never quite clear on who's really doing the attacking. Hey, Tony, I hear you, you got a story about some of these um, uh, smart home devices and maybe their ability to eavesdrop on you. The researchers were doing some, some work around uh, the Alexa and the Google Home uh, smart devices. Now, uh, as we all know, with these things being in our home, if we're not muting them, they're out there listening. And they're listening for a reason. Uh, you need to initiate them by, hey, Alexa, or okay, Google, to have them you know, wake up and actually do the work that you want them to do. The researchers at SR Labs said, if we create these apps, um, can we do some sort of eavesdropping or even take it a step further and uh, use them for phishing for sensitive information for the users of their apps? Uh, it's not necessarily the devices, it is about these apps that these developers or the, these researchers created. So what they did, it, the first step, is they focused on eavesdropping. And what they did is they created these apps. Uh, they were 
related to um, your daily horoscope. So they created the horoscope app and it was, okay, Google, uh, can you tell me my horoscope? I'm a Virgo or Leo or whatever. And it will actually produce your daily horoscope. But what the developers of these nefarious apps did was they actually had it pause afterwards. It gave that feeling to the user that you got your horoscope and the application stopped, but it would loop. Every nine seconds, it would sit there and try to see if there's any more speech happening. And if it, if it did hear it, it would convert the speech to text. Then it would port the, the text out to a server. Uh, since there were researchers and they were not doing anything truly nefarious, just trying to see if their theory worked, uh, they tested this. Uh, there's videos that show them talking and as they're talking to the camera with these videos, a screen is up and you can see their, their speech being transferred to text. And that kind of shows that you can actually move that data outside away from your home and uh, you now have the ability to eavesdrop. Now, the one thing that they did with these particular apps is after 30 seconds, if it detected no speech, the application would actually cease. It would do what it was supposed to do if it was a non-nefarious app. Now they took it and they decided, okay, we can eavesdrop. Can we actually fish these people? So they built another set of apps and these were the sneaky ones because what it did is if you installed these apps uh, and then you tried to initiate it, it would use the voice of either Alexa or Google to say that there was an error with the application and it's not being able to you know, function within your country. Uh, that's, that's what I heard in the videos that they showed. Now what happens after that is they had a way to code in the application to actually pause for 60 seconds. It gave that feeling again to the user that the app, the skill or action had stopped. Then after 60 seconds, it would say in the same voice of that smart device that there is a new update. And if you would like the update to install immediately, please say, and it was some sort of word, and then your password. Now again, with these videos, they had a screen up and the user went to the smart device and said the phrase, said their password, and then you saw it on the screen. And that proved that with these nefarious apps, that you can fish a user in their own house and you can either get their, uh, with this video, it was an, an Alexis, so it was your Amazon password, but you could craft an app to use it to obtain credit card information or really anything else. And then uh, lastly, it looks like that the companies at least identified this problem and fixed it, but to all of us that have these devices in our home, we just have to be careful what, what we download. It's not, it's not the smart device, but it's what you as a user put on them that could be detrimental to you. So it seems very easy, at least from a, an Amazon Alexa perspective, to install a new app and mm -hmm. maybe install isn't the right word anymore, but as long as you name the app, uh, you, it starts right up. So um, yeah. it's, it's very easy also, I think, to, to name apps similarly to existing ones, and if someone misspeaks, maybe they accidentally kick off the wrong version of the app. I'd love to see someone do some research on how close they allow you to name things to existing popular applications to just sort of like 
attack that namespace. Right. Yeah. Unlike most devices that we install apps on, um, you have very little visibility into when an app has been installed, what apps are installed, and more importantly, how many people have installed that app otherwise. So like mm. normally when I'm going through and maybe installing an app uh, from the app store, even the legitimate one, and I do a search, I'll see like maybe multiple results and I'll see, oh, only five people have installed this one, but this one has 50,000 installs. The 50,000 install one, that's probably the one that's the real one, as opposed <laughs> to the very low count ones, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you look in the Android marketplace. I've noticed that you know, rogue apps can slip in um, and they usually have lower counts, but they have very similar names to the legitimate app. That's if you're like looking at the Alexa app itself on your phone. Right, which I would never really do. Right, I mean, usually. I think most people will set it up once and then do everything they need to through the voice interface, which right. has a limited bandwidth. And if you had to instruct people, you know, all right, before you install an app, have Alexa tell you how many stars it is and how many people have downloaded it and give you a, a, a description of it, people would say like, no, just, just install it. Just install I just want to run it. You right. know? Yeah, that's, that's what most people would say. But, you know, security-minded, conscious people like us, we'd probably be like, well, I don't know, is this the real one? Mm -hmm. Or is this the bogus version of this app? You know, I guess this is kind of the onus is on Amazon and Google to make sure their marketplaces are vetted um, for this type of thing. And it sounds like they're maybe going to make some additional changes to, um, you know, be able to detect this type of thing more proactively and, and stop somebody else from making a similar rogue app like this. I would be very careful and maybe go back and audit through the through your phone you can go look at what apps have been actually installed you know maybe do that every once in a while just to see if anything unexpected has been added uh, based on something you might have said uh, and not realize that it actually installed a new app or skill onto your device and, and personally i think if you have one of these at your house um, and it has a physical mute button you may want to use that and keep it muted when other times that you're not using it So Matt, I heard you have a story here about uh, Microsoft SQL Backdoor. Do you want to go into it? Yeah, so this one's kind of interesting. Um, so this is group Winty, which people probably have heard of. Uh, they're, they're, they're not really an APT group, but they're a more advanced group. Um, they are known for attacking gaming companies and software companies. And they seem to be trying to make money off of the attacks that they do towards these companies. So Winty is known as a, it's a group. It's also the name of their software they used to use. Um, but primarily we're talking about Winty, the group, not the software. So uh, ESET was looking around at different samples that they had with certain techniques, like a certain loader, a certain packer, uh, to try and find more stuff that Winty might be using. And they came across a new sample, and it is a Microsoft SQL backdoor. And it uses a lot of the same techniques, which is why they're attributing it to Winty. And what it does is you run this whole package on the system once you're on it. Mm -hmm. it actually gets injected into the Microsoft SQL server process. So like it's, it's running oh, in so that code. it hooks code. the Microsoft SQL and then process. It, yeah, and it hooks the DLL for a bunch of different calls. And the most important one is the one for validating whether or not someone has the right password. Oh. And what they do is they'll say, you know, if, if you're, you know, usually the, the calls would go like, check the password. If they're not the right password, boot them back out. Now it's check the password. Also, if you use the magic password, you get it anyway. Interesting. So now there's this secret password that only certain people know about. When the password gets used, it also turns off logging. So any connections from that, that attacker IP address are no longer logged. So they're in the system and they can tamper with the database however they want to. 
And the suggestion from ESET is that these guys are using it to tamper with in-game money, in-game economies. So you know, if you, can, if you can do something to the economy of a game and then cash it out to real-world money, you can make real money out of it. Uh, so basically that's the whole thing. It's just a new technique that these guys are using. Uh, it's very interesting in my opinion because I've, I haven't heard too much about people going to these lengths of writing their own, you know. Right, you know, backdoor inside a legitimate like server process. So the thing that um, this kind of reminds me of is back in the day, and I don't remember what the group was, um, but the, um, the Cisco sinful knock, they had kind of a little yeah. port knocking that worked at a very low level, you know, in the Cisco iOS firmware to get into the device. Um, similarly, they're hooking way at the lower level uh, in this particular story to get a backdoor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, compromise into the device that's kind of like hidden. Um, unlike the types of things we've talked about on the show where you have a web shell or something, that's not nearly as involved or mm -hmm. deep into the system as this would be. Right, so if a, a less skilled attacker wanted to do this, they would get onto the server somehow and they would um, steal a credential to get into the database or something like that. Right. Um, and have some other methods of persistence. And this, this runs entirely, you know, you run your program, it jumps into the main thread for the server and that's it. I mean, you can get rid of your, your files at that point because you're already in the server process. You've already got your backdoor resident there. And as long as the server doesn't get rebooted, you're there till forever, I guess. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of who they target here, they're not targeting users of these gaming, um, you know, these uh, massively multiplayer games where they have lots of scales of economy of money and stuff, they're not targeting the users so much as they're targeting the game itself. The game environments themselves or whatever. The, yeah, the, games the game economy is probably a more accurate way of, of saying what they're attacking because they have to get onto the game server and then play around with money that, you know, they can, you know, increase balances, decrease balances. They didn't speak about targeting particular users or, you know, you know, griefing other players. It seemed to be more about just getting into the game and making money. Right, you probably want to be as discreet as possible. Though they're, they're targeting the, the gaming company, at, at the end of the day, if they're trying to get US dollars, they could be selling that stuff to these users. And in all honesty, it's to, to that user, it's a legitimate transaction. Uh, whatever they're, they're purchasing is probably gonna remain on that game and you know, it is definitely accessing and abusing these companies and then turning around and making money against that company's user base. And that could disrupt those the multiplayer economies. I remember 15, 20 years ago when I was working on and playing in some of those, how there's disruption when people would, you know, try to sell huge items online for those games. Right. Yeah, Especially that, like hard to get items and things like that, right? Yeah, or hard to get characters too. I mean, if right. you want to spend a whole bunch of money and skip to level 50 instead of starting at level one, that's valuable to somebody who doesn't have a lot of time but has a lot of money. Right, yeah. but for these guys, they just got a few keystrokes and they've created a new level 50 character right. with tons of money and tons of other things because they have direct access to the database. And we are speculating as to how they're actually cashing out here, but right. you know, these are all valid, these, right. these are all ways that would work. They didn't write this to target a specific database. They were at the target Microsoft SQL Server, right. the, so, the two most common versions. So if this gets onto a system that's running Microsoft SQL Server and they add this magic password and they've got connections that aren't being logged, 
you know, the attacker could spend as long as they want figuring out how to monetize the data they've got access to. Right, they right. could use it against whoever they felt was worth doing it to. Right. This particular type of attack would have left behind some artifacts of additional DLLs and types of things of that nature um, left behind as part of the implant. So I would recommend that people have some sort of um, uh, checking that looks to see if any new changes have been made from a source code perspective uh, deployed onto that running server on a regular basis. And that would be a good indicator that it's been compromised in some way. I think it's more of something that the developers and the, the, the admins of, of online services have to be aware of, that this is a possibility. I don't think that people who are playing the games have to worry as much, though they should probably keep an eye on their, their, their in-game assets uh, anyway. And if anything changes, they can alert the abusive department at the game company. All right, Matt, I thought we'd take a look at the internet weather for this uh, week. Not a whole lot of different, uh, but there's a couple of things that pop to the surface here. So this is the uh, top 10 most probe ports this is where we see most of the scanning activity, irrespective of how many people are doing it or how many devices are doing it. Um, and we can see that port 9001 has jumped up 235 spots, uh, which is pretty significant. So we're going to take a closer look at that one. The rest of the ports we've talked about before, I'll point out like some of the notable ones. So 8545 is the Ethereum, uh, Ethereum GETH. Um, uh, there's a vulnerability on that. So there's still some scanning going on here. Uh, remote Desktop Protocol, SSH, some of the other ones we know as well. 8089 is a web uh, type service. I'm not quite sure which this one is. I didn't get a chance to look at it in detail. Um, but I decided to focus more on the 9001 this week. So let's take a quick look. And we actually, um, this actually is reflected both in the uh, most probe ports as well as uh, a scan SIP uh, increase in volume. So we're going to see that in a second here. The thing about port 9001 is that technically it is officially assigned to the ETL service manager, which I'm not even quite sure what that is. But I'm pretty sure that whatever's happening here has nothing to do with that. Um, 9001 is a well-known port for Tor. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a Tor egress entry node um, type of uh, thing. That, that's where the, um, the Tor entry nodes are uh, usually, although they can be on any port, but I think that's the default. So this could be scanning for that. Um, there's also something called the Linux Supervisor D service uh, that runs, and that does have a remote code execution vulnerability. Um, from 2017. From 2017. So it's much, it's very old. Um, well, I should say, not very old, a couple years old. So it's kind of hard to say. Um, I had no um, scanning probes in our honeypot to see of this. So whatever was happening didn't really cross our threshold, unfortunately. Hmm. But you can see, so the top chart here is the number of scan probe attempts, just in general. Um, whereas, and this is a 60-day chart. You know, there are little blips here and there, but it really, um, you know, it really uh, started flying up here around uh, October 18th, it looks like, somewhere around the middle of October 18th. Uh, it really started to increase. And we have a corresponding, this is the number of scan SIPs that we're scanning for it. So you can see that also is very low, but it, it shot up, same time frame, up to about 4,500. Not a ton, but enough, you know. It doesn't really make sense as to why we're seeing scanning on this port right now. Uh, there are other better ways to get a long list of Tor nodes than scanning for all of them across the network. Someone may have another uh, use case. They may be looking for Tor nodes that aren't advertised typically. 
they may be looking for a vulnerability in Tor, uh, but we don't have that specific traffic that's being sent, so we can't take a look at it and say for sure what's going on. So this is the most sources probing, and we see like a very common cast of characters we see all the time. So I didn't really focus on these because I was like, we talk about these all the time. This is not really that interesting. Uh, so I decided that we go a little off-road this week, and I went through the 11 to 20 we go. most sources probing. And there's a couple of interesting ones here. Um, port 8291 and port 8728, uh, they were in here. They were here last week as well, um, but they moved up a couple of positions. This is also where port 9001, which we talked about earlier, went up 500 positions in terms of scan SIPs. Mm -hmm. uh, before we were talking about just sheer volume of scanning probes uh, in the previous one where it went up 250 or something. Um, but it went up uh, a whole bunch of positions in relative to the number of scan sources. And then uh, we'll also take a quick look at port 37215 because that's an odd port, uh, even though we have talked about it before on the show. So this is port 8291 and port 8728 uh, together because uh, they are directly related and you can see that pretty clearly. So the blue is port 8728 scanning, uh, the number of scan SIPs scanning for it, and port 8291 is the red stuff. And you can see that there's a very close relationship between when the scan happens and then it kind of diminishes and there's a big increase and it diminished again all the way for, and this is a 60 day chart. Um, you know, so there's a quiet period here, maybe about a month or so, mm -hmm. and then it's since come back up again. These um, two ports are related to uh, Microtech routers. Um, there's a couple of, um, there are ports that listen on the Microtech routers. I think one of them is kind of a, it's almost like a ping check that the malware, there's a bunch of botnets out there trying to scan for these devices and compromise them. I think one of them is kind of like, hey, are you a Microtech device? And if it responds, then it goes and hits the other port to actually get into it okay, uh, yeah. and run the exploit. And then uh, port 37215, this is a much longer chart because the activity didn't really have anything, even though it is increasing here in the past month or so, um, it has a lot of variability, but I want to go all the way back to July of 2018 and before um, because this is a port associated with Huawei, uh, HG532 routers. There's a lot of these actually deployed out there um, on the internet at large. And um, the Satori botnet kind of infamously became known as one of the first ones to start scanning for and exploiting a vulnerability in these routers on that port um, to recruit them into the botnet. Um, if you go way back, I kind of clipped it because if you go way back a little bit to the left of this chart where I'm not showing it, the number of scan sources was in the hundreds of thousands. Wow. So it actually made this so you could barely see it. It was just like a little tiny thing. So when it first kicked in, it had a whole bunch of scan sources. I don't know, it since went down and you're not getting as many involved. But I do think that, you know, Satori is a Mirai variant, mm -hmm. which I should point out. And um, uh, I think it compromises more than just Huawei. So there's probably, you know, these scan sources that are involved here are not all Huawei routers, although they're looking for Huawei, as an addition to other things probably for exploitation to recruit into the botnet in terms of devices. So this is the Satori one, um, which is an article that was uh, actually put out in 
December wow. of 2017. So it's been around for a while, but this has been going on. And I guess also this illustrates the problem of uh, these IoT type devices. People buy these things, they're very low touch. They don't really have to do anything except plug them in, power them up, and then they work. And as long as they continue to work, they don't care. Um, but they also don't get patched very often mm-hmm. uh, and fixed, even though there's probably patches available for these devices, uh, they're not getting patched. So uh, that's why years go by where these kind of botnets can fester and it becomes very difficult. Whereas when you look at Windows-based malware or even Mac or whatever, usually they'll get remediated more easily because there's patching mechanisms already in place. Automatic patching. Yeah, yeah automatic patching that you know, Microsoft can push out or Apple can uh, in order to take care of this problem. Whereas most of these embedded devices, they don't have good infrastructure. Some have gotten better. I will say, um, I think the industry has gotten better in general about um, having some mechanism in place to at least let you self-patch yourself. Um, but uh, uh, I don't know that there's a lot of automatic patching yet in a lot of the you know, home embedded router or appliance type stuff that's out there now. So that's why these things kind of fester. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.